0: Well, good morning. It is Monday, the 27th of September. We're going to roll quickly here at the top of the hour so that we can talk with Dr. Russell Moore from Christianity Today about public theology. What does that mean? All right. So a few headlines here to start us off. Switzerland remaining neutral no longer on this particular topic. Uh, Switzerland voted by a commanding majority to legalize same-sex marriage. That makes uh, Switzerland one of the last Western European countries to do so. Um, Maybe more interesting to folks here in the United States is the fact that the Sonoran state of Mexico also uh, voted to approve same-sex marriage. Um, And so when we think about Mexico and you think about it being um, a largely Roman Catholic nation, uh, the, the fact that in Mexico, abortion is now legal, and same-sex marriage is now approved um, in many states. You know, I just think you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to be Roman Catholic? And, and, and what does it mean to uh, live as a Christian in the culture today, where the shifting sands of cultural acceptance of things that are not biblically, I, I don't even know the word here to use—authorized. Um, accepted, encouraged, blessed. Yeah. When we get to the place where we're blessing things that God does not bless and we're doing things that God uh, expressly prohibits there, I would say, you know, abortion, the taking of another human life, we just really have to sit back and say, I, my identity is um, more bound to the things of this world than it is bound to God and his work and what pleases him. And that's a you know, that's an important place for us to arrive at individually, but also culturally. All right. The House of Representatives is not going to vote on the trillion dollar infrastructure bill today, as had been planned. It looks like that vote is going to take place on Thursday. And preliminary results of Germany's federal election are in. Uh, you, you remember that uh, Andrea Merkel is going to retire. She will stay in her post until a new government is formed. It's a parliamentary process. And so those those negotiations to form or put together Germany's next government are now underway. All right. Next up, Dr. Russell Moore from Christianity Today. We'll be right back. Thrilled to welcome back today Dr. Russell Moore. Um, We have talked with Russell on many occasions in the past. He is a dear brother in Christ. He is most famously the husband of one and the father of several boys, and he does a good job at both of those things, which I think wins him great credibility to say things about other things as well. He is a pastor, he is a theologian, and he now works for Christianity Today. Dr. Moore, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Oh, good to be with you, Carmen.
0: All right, let's talk about your new role at Christianity Today. Um, What are you doing?
1: I'm doing essentially what I've always been doing, except in a different setting, uh, which is uh, providing uh, content, uh, writing, um, video and audio uh, content, uh, building uh, coalitions and gatherings and conferences and so forth about uh, applying a vision of the kingdom of God to uh, the rest of life.
0: All right. Applying a vision of the kingdom of God to the rest of life. And I I love how you answer the question that, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I've always been doing. My context has changed or my setting is different. I feel like that is how each and every one of us should perceive whatever it is we're doing today. I'm, I'm doing what I've always been doing. Like as a Christian, I'm seeking God and his righteousness and then having that ooze out of my life in every way and every direction Um, no matter whatever else I'm doing. So thank you for that. When you talk about um, bringing the kingdom of God to bear or loosening it here in the world, talk with us a little bit about the language for that. Um, Maybe the language is public theology?
1: It it can be. I mean, public theology uh, simply means taking a word, uh, not, not in my view, so much a word about God, but a word from God, and uh, directing it outward, so what you're what you 're doing is uh, equipping people on the inside of the church to be able to understand the outside as we go uh, forward in in mission and you 're also speaking to those on the outside about this is what it means to live in christ and to and to follow Christ um, in terms of uh, both evangelism but also uh, just in terms of helping people to understand, even if they reject the gospel, that they understand what it is that they're rejecting. And so one, one of the concerns that I have right now is that I see uh, many of our uh, non-Christian uh, friends who are walking away, from, uh, walking away from the gospel, not because they see a vision of Jesus and they say, I've counted the cost and the cost is too much, I can't believe in empty tombs or virgin births, or I can't uh, crucify myself and, and give up my life in order to save it. That's always been the case. What I see uh, often are a lot of people who have never seen what the actual vision of Christ is and what the call of Christ is, and they think they have, and what they're walking away from actually is something altogether different. And that to me is a tragedy. And I think the same thing often is happening inside of the church with people who, you know, I spend all day every day talking to people who will either say, I'm just barely hanging on. I mean, just as recently as last night, right before I went to bed, the people who are saying, I'm, I'm here. Uh, I'm a believer. I I'm not going to walk away from Jesus, but I'm just barely hanging on because of the stuff that I've seen. And, I mean, that's not an unusual situation. Simon Peter had that in John six, uh, where Jesus says, are you, are you wanting to go away too? And Peter says, yeah, kind of, but, uh, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So I think we have to, we have to, um, encourage people on the inside to be able to uh, talk to and to dialogue with their neighbors, uh, in ways that are different from the sort of, uh, Sloganeering, polarizing sorts of conversations that we see around us right now?
0: I think the slogan, uh, the sloganizing, polarizing enemy pointing out, you know, m- making an enemy of the other, regardless of who the other is or what the subject matter is, happening a lot inside the church today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I would recognize that historically from my mainline roots, but, you know, also just recognize it among an increasing diversity of people who would self-identify as evangelical and yet mean that term in very, very different ways. Um, So one of the ways that I would describe what you do um, is that you serve as a translator, an interpreter, an exegete, almost from one group of people to another group of people. You're kind of standing at at the fold between the pages of the church and the world and seeking to An translate. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> that's good. Um, and so that's a but that's a hard place to be. Like, let's just admit that's a really hard place to to be and to live. Uh, it's a hard calling. It's a good calling, um, but it's a hard calling. And I'm wondering if there are times when you're, you know, your audience is really the world, and so you're you're seeking to make the things of the Christian world known to the world at large, and therefore people within the church misunderstand what you're doing or, uh, you know, or have things to say about that. And then the reverse is also true. There's times when your audience is the church, and you're trying to help the church see things about herself, and the world overhears that and then has things to say as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think that's unusual. I don't think that's an unusual calling for a Christian. I think it's unusual for a person to sort of publicly accept that as their calling.
1: Well, I really don't think that that's that hard. As a matter of fact, I think there's a a great deal of joy in that, because one of the things that takes place is everybody eventually has to do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not in the same context, but everybody is going to have to figure out, how am I going to talk to my neighbor or how am I going to uh, be when I'm in my uh, workplace and I'm I'm dealing with people who don't understand what motivates me and so forth, and how am I going to be a a presence of Christ there, and 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 be uh, a, and evidence the sort of um, the sort of life that He is living. I Man, that's a hard that's the hard part, um, but I think there's a great deal of joy in in uh, being in different contexts with the same message and helping people to sort of bilingually understand what that is and um and, and yeah do do sometimes people misunderstand and get get uh confused of course i mean that's that's all they, they we should have that reaction there's a scandal that comes with the gospel so that if that were not happening we wouldn't be we, we, we would be talking about something else we would be talking about the gospel but there's also this sense of Uh, The joy of getting to see people who are in um, uh, Nicodemus sorts of situations where it's not that they want to have a public sort of dialogue or a public uh, conversation, or if they do, they do it in one way, and then want to have a private conversation later saying, well, you know, tell me what this looks like. Uh, Or the sort of people who, at the end of Acts 17 uh, with uh, Paul on Mars Hill, where the the people say, "Ah, we don't know about this, but we're gonna we're gonna hear you out later." I mean, that happens a lot. I think there's a great deal of joy in that, and I think eventually everybody has to do that. Sometimes people have to do it at the Thanksgiving table, but mm-hmm. um, but but there's um, there's a great deal of joy in that too.
0: We're talking with uh, Dr. Russell Moore, public theologian, director of the Public Theology Project for Christianity Today. We'll be right back. You got
2: the keys inside this key.
0: Rejoining our conversation with Dr. Russell Moore, um, we are talking about public theology. We're talking about his new role at Christianity Today. You can find him and what he's writing and working on at ChristianityToday.com. When you think about the things that have your attention right now versus the things that everyone in the world wants you to be focused on and talking about, help us discern between the important and the urgent in terms of how we each one engage in exactly what you're talking about, because, uh, you know, everybody eventually has to do what you're doing, um, which is be this person who stands in the world but is not of it.
1: Well, I think sometimes the urgent can be the gateway to the important. Uh, so if, um, if you pick up something that people are a buzz about and talking about and sort of redirect it to what really matters... I think that can often happen. And I, I think sometimes if you look at just the way Jesus responds to various issues, there it's not one way. So sometimes you're going to have Jesus, he's confronted with some urgent question and he just answers it. And then there are other times when he's confronted with an urgent question and he pivots it and he reframes it and says, That's that's not what really is important this is. Um, and then other times he just ignores the question all altogether and continues out his mission. So it takes a great deal of wisdom to sort of uh, figure that out so that you're not diverted into um, the, the kinds of conversations that really are distractions. And I mean, distractions in the way that Blaise Pascal, the, um, uh, the uh, old uh, mathematician and Christian philosopher would say, people, they're looking at death, uh, ahead of them and they want to distract themselves from that. And one of the ways that people tend to do that is with endless controversies and and micro controversies that really aren't important, but they're just about having something to do and uh, and, and entertaining one's mind. You have to be able to recognize that and sometimes you just say that's not worth engaging in. so as the, the apostle paul says these these endless debates over genealogies in in his context don't have anything to do with that but then there are other times that you're going to come in and say okay well um this is what you're concerned about but let's explore why you're concerned about that why are you worried about this why are you fearful of this why are you angry uh, about this because there's something in that that's rooted in creation and the image of God otherwise it wouldn't captivate you and there's something there that's rooted in our fallenness um and so let's address it let's look at what the the real issue is so in some in some cases i think what we all have to do is um is similar to what maybe a psychiatrist has to do someone comes in and they're talking about, um, you know, my problem is X. You know that the real problem behind that is Y, but you kind of have to get get at it through X, because if you avoid X, they're going to want to keep coming back to it. So I think it just takes some wisdom and discernment.
0: That's so sometimes good. Sometimes we get I, it
1: wrong. Sometimes we yeah. Get it you wrong.
0: have me. You have me thinking there about uh, the conversation that you know the the real issue behind every issue, the issue behind every issue is the God issue, and. Mm-hmm. If we know that, which we we know, um, then I think it does help us find our footing and not be constantly, um, you know, leaning, you know, on on our heels. Um, And it also doesn't have us uh, responding to every uh, seeming crisis as if it's the real crisis because there is an issue behind every presenting issue.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you can see this not just with unbelievers. You can see it often in the church. I, I remember, I think about this all the time, being with uh, my pa- pastor, I respected a lot. We were at a, a denominational associational meeting, and it was crazy. It's these guys would get up at the microphone and just argue about nothing. And uh, I turned to my pastor and said, How, what, what is happening here? And he said, what you have to understand is these are guys that in their churches, they're getting beaten up all the time. They're they're completely powerless. Um, they, they feel like they don't have any uh, agency in their own life, in their workplace, in their marriage, in their community and anywhere. And this is the place when they get to the microphone where everybody has to listen to them. And so that's what's happening. And it really helped me because what, what he was showing there was a, a sense of empathy. This is where this is coming from. Not in order that we emulate it, but so that we don't, um, and so that we can so that we can kind of understand where that's coming from I, I think that's I think that's true with so much of of what's going on, whether it's in uh, marriage or parenting or uh, Facebook debates or, or everything else.
0: Yeah, or school board meetings or Congress, like I, I yeah. think that oh, you've absolutely. made a really you've made a really important observation there. Um, that is so helpful. Um Dr. Moore what are you um what are you most focused on today?
1: What I'm most focused on today is we're uh, launching uh audio and video uh resources that are coming this week or next week I'm not exactly sure uh awesome. but uh the new Russell Moore show that uh, will be both audio and video and we just had a live event Beth Moore and I did an event together on Lessons in Leaving and Staying, uh, which was more about the staying than the leaving, because uh, the the whole point was to convince people there's a way other than cynicism when you've experienced bad things in the church. Um, And so that will be uh, starting, and the the way it'll work is um, one week will be a conversation with someone. The next week will be questions uh, from viewers and listeners with things that they're grappling with. And, um, cool. and that's the way we'll go forward. So that, that'll be um, launching soon.
0: All right. Uh, you guys can find Dr. Russell Moore at ChristianityToday.com. We'll be looking for the new Russell Moore show. Um, fodder, always excellent fodder for wonderful conversation. Russell, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, good to be with you. Thanks, Carmen.
0: We'll be right back. What does it look like to live no lies? What does it look like to live as people of truth, walking out the truth into the world that God so loves? We have pastor and author John Mark Comer up next. And yes, we're giving away copies of Live No Lies. We'll be right back. of anger between family members isn't new. Neither is the antidote. 3,000 years ago, a man wrote this, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. That advice is from the book of Proverbs chapter 15, is just as relevant today as it was the day it was written. When arguments and anger reign in the house, one way to fan the flames is with harsh language. What do your responses sound like? Are they quick and cutting or slow and gentle? We all mess up at times, but I'd encourage you to aim for consistent responses when things get heated. As Proverbs 15 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath.
2: Find more parenting help from Mark Gregston at
1: parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
0: to welcome John Mark Comer to the program today. His newest book, Live No Lies. He is the founding pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. He's a teacher and a writer. You probably know him best as the author of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, John Mark, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: It's so great to be back with you. Good morning.
0: So uh, this was such a provocative way to open a book. As a radio person, I loved it. So, <laughs>
2: That's right. Oh, good. I almost cut right, that
0: out. Right. So talk with us about how you open the book, because I think that when we think of how we consume information today, we do make the assumption that people are telling us the truth. And one of the things that you lay out right in the beginning is you can't always trust what you hear.
2: yes. Yeah, I tell the story at the beginning of the book that uh, a few people know, but has been a little bit, is starting to get lost to history of Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds. not the Not the H.G. Wells, the original literary novel from the 19th century, but the radio adaptation. And there's this crazy story about how in the early 1900s, he adapted this whole novel for radio, and it was you know, very much theater. And it was the, one of the first kind of mediums, as you know, to blend the line between fact and fiction, kind of some of the original fake news. And he wasn't trying to, to uh, deceive anybody. He was just trying to create an entertainment program, but it's a very long story I tell in the book. But basically a number of people turned in late to the show and heard about aliens invading the Eastern seaboard and killing and wiping out people. And you know, fake FDR presidential break-in voice. And they were used to hearing this from you know the war of Nazi Germany and all that kind of stuff. And people thought it was real. People actually thought that either aliens or Germany had invaded the Eastern Seaboard and America was being destroyed. And there was mass hysteria across the entire nation. And so I just kind of opened that as a little bit of a provocative and humorous story about the power of truth and lies and how far more easily manipulatable and deceivable we are than we would like to believe.
0: So my mom was like six months old when this actually took, took place in real time. And I remember my grandfather, who would have been 30 at the time. I remember him fast forward. You know, he's late in life. Um, I was in graduate school. And I sat with him as he absolutely denied that we ever landed on the moon. And the reason that he, because he's like, you can't trust what they tell you. Let me tell you what happened in 1938. And he told me this story that you tell in the opening of this book. He listened to that in real time and he trusted what he heard over the radio. And then he found out it was a lie. And that led to him not trusting a lot of other things in the future, including that we landed on the moon.
2: So I do think That is absolutely fascinating.
0: There's just a lot of power in lies and there's a lot of power the bigger the lie or the bigger the lie seems. And so you really dig around in the power of the truth in Live No Lies. The book is Live No Lies. John Mark Comer is my conversation partner today. Talk with us about when fiction goes awry and this emotional tender box uh, that you describe, because it does feel like we're in that kind of war right now.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, one it's it's a major problem. I mean, set aside spirituality and discipleship, this is hypothetical, don't actually do that. (laughs) But, you know, it's a major problem for Western society as a whole. But I kind of approach it, you know, less through the angle of the culture wars, though there's some of that in the book, but more just through the angle of the teachings of Jesus. You know, Jesus, one of his most famous teachings was, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But if you reverse engineer that maxim or teaching a little bit, he was simultaneously saying that we are in bondage to lies. And at the root of whatever sin is, and theologians you know, uh, have, have been debating what exactly sin is and how it is in our body and how we're born into it for thousands of years. And there's different answers to that question based on different traditions in the church and different times in history. But whatever sin is at some level, it's more than this, but not less. It is a bondage to a kind of lie, to kind of false ideas, to deception about reality, about what is real and what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. So I do a deep dive in the book into some of Jesus' teachings around the devil, uh, which are so contrary to what we expect. I and mean, most people here today, you know, think of the devil and they just laugh at it as a, if they're honest, as a kind of pre-modern myth or a cartoon character or a some kind of a caricature from Hollywood. But in Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil in John chapter eight, he doesn't mention most of the things that we would imagine or we'd expect him to talk about with the devil, whether that be demonization or some poltergeist thing or a tsunami or natural disaster, even disease or death, though there's a place for all of that in the four gospels. But what he talks about is the role of lies. He calls the devil the father of lies, he says, you are a liar from the beginning. It says of the devil, when he lies, he speaks his native language, which is all going back to the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. So for Jesus, whoever this evil kind of creature is that we call the devil, he is first and foremost, his, his primary kind of method To wreak havoc in the soul and society is lies and deception from the beginning of time, from page three of the Bible all the way to today.
0: So I'm sure that when you when you thought about this, uh, Zechariah chapter nine is maybe not what leapt to the forefront of your mind. But we've been having conversations in our house about what Zechariah meant when he talked about when he referred to us as prisoners of hope and when he, when you talk about the line. restored the restored people of God being prisoners of hope, you are juxtaposing that with the reality that everyone in our fallen and therefore natural state lives as a prisoner of lies. We live as a prisoner of death, we live as a prisoner of desperation, and in order to live as a prisoner of hope, you know a, a significant exchange has to be made, and that 's a gospel conversation as well. Mm-hmm there is an active sabotage of my peace underway, this this war that is raging. Talk about the three enemies that sabotage our peace.
2: So basically, the way I, I wireframe the book is an attempt to kind of recapture and update, not theologically, but kind of culturally for our modern era, this very ancient Christian pattern that We don't know exactly where it first started. Arguably, it goes back to the Desert Fathers and Mothers in the third and fourth century in kind of North Africa. And they identified what they called the three enemies of the soul, which were kind of like a counter trinity to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who were at war. If the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are lovingly bringing the kingdom, the rule of God, that comes with the peace of God over our mind, and our body, and our community of the church, and eventually the whole creation, then this counter trinity the three enemies of the soul are are bringing the exact opposite the chaos of the kingdom of darkness and they identified them as the world the flesh and the devil and, you know, again, as a as a millennial who spent my entire life in kind of these very secular West Coast cities, and I do a lot of work with young people, those three kind of ideas have been basically lost. There's a lot of Christians who are basically secular Christians, you know, and Christianity for them is almost like a Jesus version of Buddhism or of, you know, Christian self-help or whatever. And very few of our people in our generation think of spirituality at all as a war, or a struggle, or conflict, or a wrestle. And very few of us take seriously these paradigms of the devil. Again, we think of the devil as like this pre-modern myth that we've kind of, now we know better because we have science. We think of the flesh and that's just that that language doesn't even make sense to us anymore. We live in a sensual culture that's all about kind of hedonism and feeling good in the moment and the world we don't really even have a paradigm for we prefer to talk about the arts and entertainment or economics or politics or systemic whatever and so i'm trying to recapture this ancient paradigm because my conviction has become that these ancient christians and the writers in the new testament actually were far more uh far more adept at naming the reality of spiritual life than we are today and that in our our push to kind of set aside this military imagery, war imagery, conflict imagery, and create a spirituality of kind of Christian self-help, we've actually completely misunderstood reality, and we're suffering for
0: it. All right, we're talking with John Mark Comer. We're talking about his brand new book, Live No Lies. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Picking up where we left off with John Mark Comer, the new book is Live No Lies. We do have copies to give away today. If you'd like to enter that drawing, text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Um, let's pick up where we left off. I think that uh, when you when you speak so strongly about this war that is indeed raging for the soul, Um, and you talk about this counter-trinity, the three enemies that sabotage our peace, which is the framework of the book, the devil, the flesh, and the world. Deception seems to me a huge part of the conversation. So can we talk about deception specifically?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Jesus locates deception in the devil in his most in-depth teaching. And if you just do a simple—this would be a great use of 15 minutes of your time. Just go to BibleGateway.com or whatever— and do a basic kind of word search on deception, deceit, lies, and then just just do the New Testament. You will be shocked at how many scriptures and warnings there are in the New Testament against deception. I mean, there are just—I don't have an exact number off the top of my head, but there are so many. And I start to list. The, I start. I wanted to list them all in the book, and it would have taken <laughs> would have taken thirty pages, you know there's so many warnings jesus and the new testament writers see deception as at the root of our problem at the one of the major challenges that we face as followers of jesus and you know if you think of jesus and the temptations in the desert that that, that story in matthew 4 and luke chapter 4 of, of satan coming to jesus in the desert and tempting him and the famous story turn these stones into bread It's very hard for a lot of modern Christians to read because the temptations are not blatant. They're not like, hey Jesus, here's an innocent person, murder him. Or here, hey Jesus, here's $10 million, steal it. There are these subtle, uh, subtle, kind of very um, thoughtful temptations, turn these stones into bread. Turning stones into bread, last I checked, is not sin. And Jesus regularly does miracles with food. So something else below the surface here and it's rooted to our again our bondage to lies our bondage to sin Um, i quote in the book ignatius of loyola the founder of the jesuit order who once defined sin as unwillingness to trust that what god wants for me is only my deepest happiness so at some level all temptation is temptation to believe a lie about reality, to believe a lie about what will actually make us happy and to let it go by another name than the Father, the Son, and the Spirit.
0: I think that so clearly lines up with what we know about original sin, the temptation to believe that God is in fact not good and is, is exactly. withholding some kind of good from us and, and we should go and grab mm-hmm. it for ourselves. Um, my listeners And then the, know that and then I, the temptation oh,
2: to redefine good and evil for mm-hmm. ourselves you know the that genesis story is it is the paradigm it's exactly what you just said
0: well and the move from being deceived to being deluded where i have completely so exchanged the truth for lies that i now believe the lie and i and i live yes. the lie which is you know not yes. contrary to what you're encouraging us to do the book is live no lies uh recognize and resist the three enemies that sabotage your peace uh my listeners know um, John Mark, that I love things that come at the end of a book as a like delight and surprise. So the epilogue, I loved self denial in an age of self fulfillment, and then the appendix. And I want you to talk briefly about the appendix: a monastic handbook for combating demons. Because I got to tell you, that's some really good equipping.
2: Oh, great! Yes. Yeah. So a hero of mine, where that, where that, where that uh, kind of not humorous, but where that uh, interesting language comes from: a monastic handbook for combating demons is a fourth century desert father by the name of evagrius ponticus fascinating person you can google him later all sorts of fascinating history he wrote this book in the 350s called talking back and the subtitle was a monastic handbook for combating demons which is amazing and by the way you know book titles and subtitles are actually not copyrighted which is some weird i don't understand the the law behind that so I could have, it could have been "Live No Lies," a monastic handbook for combating demons, but my publisher wasn't very into that for obvious reasons. (laughs) But he wrote this book called "Counter-Talking." And counter-talking, or another way that can that Greek there can be translated as "talking back," was language used by the Desert Fathers and Mothers, same people that developed this paradigm of the three enemies of the soul, and it was based on, again, the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Satan comes to Jesus, he tempts Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. Now, that's, again, that's a little weird to interpret. A lot of people think, well, is that like scripture is a magic incantation, like you quote scripture and Satan will go away, or is it like Jesus is doing a Bible study? And what they said is, no, what Jesus is doing is his war with the devil isn't like Apollo and Zeus fighting it out in the sky with swords. It's a, it's, it reads like, a, like an intelligent conversation about truth and lies. And Jesus pushed back his fighting of the devil is Jesus refusing to get sucked into dialogue with the devil, refusing to have conversation around the devil's lies, and instead changing his mind, changing his thought patterns to truth from the scripture. So what evagrius did is he developed what he called a monastic handbook and it's really not a book it's a handbook where he would list out all of the lies that he identified that would come into his mind he believed that thoughts could be demonically kind of animated which again to our western ears sounds bizarre but then think about it: have you ever had a thought that it's like the thought had a will of its own and had an energy to it, it had it wanted. it was like it wanted to be thought and it wanted to make you unhappy or anxious or angry or bitter or victimized or you know, anything. And he would say, actually, those thoughts come to us from outside of our own brain. They're animated by some dark spiritual energy. And the way that you fight back is you refuse to let those thoughts play in your mind and imagination. You refuse to let those videos play. And instead, you turn your mind to scripture. So he has eight chapters in the book. That fun fact later became uh, the seven deadly sins of antiquity. Two of them are really similar. So later writers collapsed two of them together. So this idea of the seven deadly sins comes from Evagrius and he developed based on these eight thoughts, you know, around anger or pride or whatever, all of these scriptures that he listed out that he put to memory that whenever that thought would come, whenever that lie would come, whenever that temptation would come, he would turn his mind to scripture. So yes, in the back of the book, I have a workbook where you can kind of go through the simple process to identify what are the lies that you have come to believe, whether they're from out there in the culture, or in your own mind, or your family of origin, or your trauma, your experience, and then what's a corresponding truth from scripture that you can put to memory, and when that lie comes, change your mind, and as a result, change your life.
0: It's so good. It's so practical. It's so helpful. It's directly biblical. It's equipping us um, to do what we need to do each and every day. Uh, John Mark Comer, you can find him at johnmarkcomer.com. The book is Live No Lies, and yes, we're giving away copies today. If you'd like to enter the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. John Mark, thank you so much for blessing us today with this conversation. The book is excellent.
2: It's my honor to come on. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely, friends. We'll be right back.
2: We need to be
0: so I appreciated the challenge from John Mark Comer um, that we do, you know, a word search and a word study of deception. And I know that there's some of you thinking, you know, we're supposed to focus on the light. We're supposed to focus on knowing Christ. We're supposed to focus, you know, we're not supposed to, you know, you don't study the enemy. You set, you study the authentic thing. A little bit like deciding whether or not uh, uh, a bill that you have in your hand, right, a piece of currency, a dollar is really a dollar, or if it's a forgery, a fake. Okay, so What he's suggesting, though, is not that we study the fake or the forgery, but that we prepare to equip ourselves to recognize the enemy and his wily ways. And so let's just say you did a word search of deception in the Bible um, or even just the New Testament. You're going to come up with um, a a lot of verses that uh, come in the form of warnings against deceit. Um, you're going you're gonna to better understand what God hates. When you think about God as being the one who is love, I don't think we often think about that which God hates. I mean, that which literally sets God's teeth on edge. No, I recognize God doesn't have teeth. Like, I get it. Don't, don't take analogies too far here. What we're talking about is whether or not we are able, whether or not we are equipped to recognize falsehood, to recognize lies, to recognize manipulation. And we have become so accustomed to simply passing along to others that which we in turn have also received that we haven't paused long to ask ourselves, is this true? Is this true? And so that's the challenge set before us, to discern that which is true. Um, Because I don't want to be a liar, liar, pants on fire. I want to be a person of truth. And certainly I am seeking to follow the one who is the way and the truth and the life. I'm seeking to have my life patterned um, fully and conform to the life of Christ. But I also recognize that that means I have to be able to recognize falsehood, deceit, and lies um, when I encounter them. So how are you doing that? How are you going about becoming equipped to recognize the schemes of the devil? Do you recognize his weapons that he uses against you in particular? Because the weapons that the enemy uses against you might not be the ones that work against me, right? And the ones that work against me may not be the weapons of the enemy that work against you. And so we need to recognize how evil works, how Satan has operated in the past, how he's operating now. The darkness is dark, but it's not as if it doesn't uh, have—that there's no plan there. The enemy has a plan. I mean, the enemy is literally stalking us right now. The scriptural image is that of a prowling lion looking for a way into our lives to devour us. Yeah, don't be devoured today. Be the one who is equipped by the word of God to recognize that which is opposed to him and to it. Where in the word are you today? Maybe do a word study of deception, as John Mark Comer recommended. There's still time for you to get in on the drawing for the copies of Live No Lies that we have here in studio. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.